0: Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Psalm 24 The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. It's a little bit of a different psalm uh, this morning, um, but one that the the psalmist, I think, believe it's here, is David, uh, has everything is founded on. The fact that God established everything, everything that He discusses, His glory that He recognizes is God's, is because He established everything. What's another word for established? Create. God's creation uh, is is the um, the the definition, excuse me, of what it is to be glorious. We've seen the last few weeks the psalmists often call on creation as they work to praise God. Just a couple reminders of the, the rules that we have set out for ourselves um, concerning uh, this class and also other Bible classes that the book speaks for itself. Uh, we attempt to use Old Testament words the way the Old Testament uses them. Uh, and then there are some words that we'll uh, see that the New Testament defines again or redefines. Uh, look at it objectively with an open mind. Uh, attempt to be, uh, allow... To read the text in an exegetical form, allow the text to lead out instead of us leading in. Um, to write it with, or read it, excuse me, with humility, um, and to remember that it was written for us, but not to us. Uh, and when we start reading into the text um, or start twisting it, we usurp God's authority. Um, and throughout Scripture, it's never a good thing to usurp God's authority. Uh, and I'll be really honest. Um, This study of Genesis has made me extremely uncomfortable. Um, Extremely uncomfortable because I am seeing things that were not there. Uh, Or let me rephrase that. I'm seeing things that I put in there that are not in the text. And there's going to be some of that today. And so I just want to preface um, that it brings me a lot of anxiety to see this stuff. Because like, wait, 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 wait. That's not what I was taught in Bible class. Wait, 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 wait. That's not what I hear over here. And it brings me a lot of anxiety when I see things in the text, and I think it should all uh, bring us some anxiety when we see things in the text, and just start asking ourselves the question, all right, um, what is the text really saying here? And allow us to dig in deeper, because if I maybe miss something uh, in this part of the text, maybe I miss something in the other part of the text, and that should be an encouragement for us to do what in general? Study, 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 surely. Yeah, so it's, we, we, we're reading somebody else's mail. Uh, and so, that, like the book of, of Genesis, the Old Testament, was written to the Israelite people. Y- correct. Uh, and, and so, it was written for us. So, we are intended to read it. Yes. But it is written to someone else. Uh, like uh, Paul's epistles. Um, who, who did Paul write the letter of 1 Corinthians to? To the, to the church in Corinth. Um, we can still glean, glean information from that and understand God's will for us, even though it was written to someone else. Yeah, and that's what there, there are some things that we don't understand because it wasn't written to us. Um, and like, what is gopher wood? We'll get there in a couple of weeks. But what is gopher wood? I don't know. It's a certain kind of wood. But to that context, I mean, it's it's something that we don't know what it is today. Uh, it could be a different type of wood. It could just be a different name for a similar type of wood. We don't know. Uh, But I I have full confidence that the people who understood uh, the Torah uh, understood what that gopher wood is. Chapter 2. We ended up uh, at the beginning of Chapter 2 last week, and we looked through uh, the seven days of creation. God set His world in order, and on the seventh day, what did He do? He rested. And when we looked at rested, what does it mean for God to rest in his creation? Yeah, so there's an aspect of ceasing. Does it mean he kicked up his feet and took a nap? No, he he, he, yeah, he, he finished it. And we see that that term rest is associated with uh, the concept of dwelling. And so that we see God took up residence within his creation. We see that in Psalm one thirty-two, and so today we're going to transition and uh, prayerfully get through the rest of chapter two. Uh, and so we'll go ahead and, and read um, the entirety of chapter two. Actually, you know what? We'll stop up through chapter through verse fifteen. We uh, start in chapter two, verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day of the Lord, excuse me, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Bishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. And it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So, what do we see here uh, recounted on uh, at this story? How does it begin? It does, yeah. And so we see it. It kind of begins with this this little bit of a poem. And a little bit of a poem goes back and calls us calls what to our attention? Creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. What does chapter 2 discuss? Yeah, but there, there, is, there is something there. there there's this common thread that Shirley picks up on. Um, she mentioned that the, the ESV that I'm using uh, says that man became a living creature, and her translation says a living soul. Uh, but we're going to see throughout that there is significance associated with the breath of life. Uh, and this concept of living, this concept of life, and it's going to be contrasted with what? What do you think life is going to be contrasted with? Death. It's going to be contrasted with death that we'll see. What does chapter 2, what do we, we think chapter 2 is discussing? Okay, so it's going to go into in, in creation of man, and the question that I want us to, uh, with anxiety, ask is, is this... The creation of the first man. Uh, I'm going to at least look at that a little differently. I'll be honest with you. I I don't know. I don't know. But I think the message that we take from it is going to be the same regardless of if this is the first man or if it's just the most important man. Um, And and I see a lot of furrows, brows. We'll dig into it. I appreciate the anxiety because guess what? That's going to force us to look. And what Scripture says. What day did God create man? Day six. Day six. And if we were to remember back, there were a lot of other things done prior to the creation of man. And so what we, what I, uh, apart from about a month ago, would have been more than happy to tell you is that this is just taking a deeper dive into how God created man. Um, That he laid it all out. It's kind of a big picture and now we're taking a deeper dive into man specifically because man is the pinnacle of God's creation. I'm going to look at it a little differently today uh, and understand why God puts emphasis on this first, or this man named Adam. Yeah, yeah. And so let, let's take a look at this. What else do we see uh, in the few chapters that we read today? So we see that God made man. How did God make man? Or the man? That it, does anyone else have a definitive article, the man? How did God make the man? What do we see specifically? Okay, so we we saw previously that it made made man in God's image in chapter 1. But here in chapter 2, how did God make the man? How did God form the man? Okay, he formed him out of dust. What else do we see? He breathed into his his, uh, nostrils the breath of life. What else do we see? Did he only create the man, or was there other stuff created? Okay, later he created woman, but, but we haven't gotten that far yet. In the section that we read here, chapter 2, verse 4 through 14, what else do we see that God created? Okay, a garden and plants. All right, wait, 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 wait. That should be asking us a question, right? What day did God create vegetation in chapter 1? Day 3. Day 3. And he created man on day six. But here it says that God formed the man and then he planted a garden with vegetation in it. So does that mean that what God did on day three and what God did on day six happened at the same time? This is a special area. Yeah, Ted and Tom got it. This is a special area and we're going to look at this. Uh, but to take a, a step back, um, and everyone, get your blood pressure medicine out, because you can, you can breathe a little bit, you can breathe a little bit. Um, we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 4. Um, how does chapter 2, verse 4 start? What are the words used in chapter 2, verse 4? Okay, these are the generations. And if I were to tell you something, um, this term shows up 11 times throughout the book of Genesis. It shows up here. I'm going to see if I can read my own handwriting You know what? i got this other paper. I can do it. Uh, We see it here in chapter 2, verse 4. We're going to see it in chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 9, 10, 1, 11, 10, 11, 27, 25, 12, 25, 19, 36, 1, 36, 9, and 37... Two, so if we see this term, these are the generations, show up eleven times in a book. Do you think there may be some significance to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is the account, or this is the history. Uh, the the ESV has these are the generations, uh, and that that terminology shows up eleven times. And we're going to look at briefly look at how this word is used in each account. The Bible tells a story, right? And if you're like me, when you tell a story, sometimes you start chasing rabbits. Uh, And what happens when you start chasing rabbits? It doesn't take long for you to miss the point of the story, or who the story is focusing on. So I'm going to look at this story. We'll just put this line out here. This is the story of the Bible, the story of the book of Genesis specifically. Well, thank you, Shirley. I miss Shirley. That's a rabbit. No, we're going to chase it. Okay. So the first time we see the, this phrase is in chapter two, verse four. And so I'm going to leave this one be for the time being, and we'll, we'll circle back to it. Uh, but join with me in chapter 5, verse 1. And we'll do this quickly, but who is discussed at the end of chapter 4 versus the beginning of chapter 5? Okay, so we see Seth, and we see at the end of chapter 4, uh, just finished up the story of Cain. Uh, and he started the, the author started chasing a rabbit and discussing Cain and into the descendants of Cain, and then he goes back and starts talking about Seth. So when we see this, one of the things we're going to see is that it kind of reorients the author or the reader, excuse me, to uh, now focus attention on the more important son. And so in chapter five, verse one, the author had been talking a lot about Cain and the descendants of Cain all the way down to Lamech, right? And then all of a sudden he gets, uh, Lamech is a bad guy. Uh, But he reorients himself back to the story. And chapter 5, I'm going to admit, is a little bit funky, and we'll look at it a little closer. But he is is bringing us, and all of a sudden he starts getting off on this tangent. And then he starts reorienting himself back. And chapter 5 is actually like a a parallel, uh, a little bit of a parallel. Because uh, chapter 4 ends with um, bringing attention back to Seth and the other son. And then he starts bringing that back up again in chapter 5, verse 1, and really start focusing in on Seth. And so we see that this term is going to reorient us, take us back down to the story. And then in chapter 6, verse 9, we're going to see a similar interaction, where all of a sudden the author starts talking about what happened to uh, the nations prior to the flood and how corrupt they were. And then it's going to uh, abruptly revert us back to the storyline and start talking about Noah. And then we see in chapter 10, it's going to start taking this tangent again to start talking about Noah. Um, It's going to go from Noah and his sons and revert back to the nations. Then we're going to see it uh, go from the nations uh, and focus specifically on Shem's descendants. And so with this one, it's kind of interesting how it takes a... uh, It takes a, uh, instead of it being a, uh, go back and start telling a different aspect of the story, it goes around and starts telling a different aspect. So this is what we would call a recursive. It's, It's a mathematical term where you want to revert back and focus on the more important. And so while here, this story starts talking about all the nations and the descendants of Noah, who is the descendant of Noah? Which of Noah's sons carries the most prominence throughout the rest of the story of the Bible? Why Shem? Yeah, Abraham came from Shem. And so if we're going to look, we're going to re- refer ourselves or reorient ourselves back to Shem, who is Abraham's descendant. We're going to look through then in uh, chapter 11, he kind of gets off talking about um, Shem's other descendants, and then boom, revert right back to Abraham, in chapter 11, verse 27. He's going to now start talking about Abraham. Chapter 25, we see the same. Where Abraham, what were Abraham's sons? He had a lot of them. Isaac and Ishmael, right? And and so we'll look at the end. In chapter 25, we start seeing something similar with it talking about Ishmael and Ishmael's descendants. Is Ishmael the most important son? No, it reverts back to start talking about Isaac, the more important son. Uh, But then he gets off um, and starts discussing. uh, He gets off on this Ishmael um, kick again, and he kind of goes back and starts telling Ishmael's story here. This is Ishmael's story. Uh, And he's going to come back and start talking about Jacob's story that happened at kind of the same time, focusing on the more important brother. He's going to do the same with Esau, get off on a kick about Esau's family, bring it back come back up here, do the same thing with Esau, because of Isaac's sons, who was more important, Esau or Jacob? Jacob, right? And why was Jacob more important? Because of the lineage, we betcha. And so we see uh, this constant uh, reverting back, and the final one, uh, we see him talking about Esau, and he goes back and starts talking about Jacob at that same period of time. Does this make sense? Uh, And and I know I'm dumping a lot on your laps in a pretty short period of time. But this term, these are the generations, this is the history, this is the account, is used throughout. So now the question we need to ask is, uh, what what was the author's intent in using it in chapter 2, verse 4? So we see this pattern. It either comes back and starts talking about a sequel, like a sequel of events, a, a line of events that happened after that, that, Or it goes back and starts telling, um, focusing in on the more important son. And so is, that's the question, is chapter two a sequel or is it focusing on the more important son? So why do we say it's a parallel? Well, and, and we'll look, and, and I'll be honest with you, there, there are, I don't think a, is a wrong answer, there may be a more correct answer. Yeah, and we looked a little bit last week on, or last week of the week before, on that parallelism, Um, and and that could be uh, the the situation here, but the whole purpose of of this structure, this this kind of literary structure, I don't know if it's a, I'm not a a linguist, uh, but this 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 structure is to focus our attention on the story that God wants us to grasp, the the key aspects, the important part of what God wants us to grasp. Don, you thought. And so, uh, to Don's point, um, that, the, a novel, uh, which Genesis is, is kind of a, a, an, a narrative account. Um, it is bringing in another additional cast of characters to highlight the story. Yeah. And they would focus on that, that lineage, focus on that historical aspect. And they, they missed the point. What was the point of, of Abraham? What was the point of Ishmael and Isaac? Uh, It's it's to fulfill the promise that God had. Ishmael is what happens when man tries to fulfill the promise on his own. Isaac is what happens when you allow God to fulfill the promise. But I I bring all this up to focus on the fact that chapter 2, verse 4 indicates to us, the reader, that there is something that the author is wanting us to focus on here. So in chapter 1, we see that God created man, and God created man in His image. And now we're seeing here that God is focusing in on A specific man. Now, there could be, there are schools of thought that believe that Adam was um, the the first man created. There are also schools of thought that there were other people living outside the Garden of Eden at this time. Um, I'll be honest with you, uh, I don't think the text gives us enough information uh, to focus on that. Um, We'll look in a couple weeks on uh, Cain taking a wife. Cain is building a city Um, A city is not just you and your kids, it's a lot of people. We're also going to look and see that the mark of Cain was so that Cain wouldn't be killed by anybody else. Um, So who was Cain worried about being killed by? Uh, Was it his children? Uh, Was it nieces and nephews? Or were there other people? And I'll be honest with you, the, the text doesn't give us enough information. And so as a result, I can't conclude anything. All I can conclude is that the text, the author of Genesis is wanting us to understand this man and what this man was created for, and the situation that he was put in. And like Tom and Ted had mentioned earlier, the garden was something special. The garden was something special that man was put into. And so let's dig in a little bit onto what this man did. We see that he was created from dust. What's the significance of dust? Let me ask the question a little bit more so it lead you a little bit more. Uh, We see the breath of life, and we see dust. Yeah, and and so there's this cycle of death, right? And and we're going to see that that Adam discusses this in chapter 3, or excuse me, God tells Adam this in chapter 3, for out of the ground you will be taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Um, There's this concept of mortality uh, associated with being created from the dust, that he would remain dust. Think of Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones. They would remain dust without what? The intervention of God. And so here we see God's intervention, breathing life into this man. Um, and he put this man with God's breath of life in him into a garden, a garden of Eden. And what was in this garden in Eden? Okay, so we see specifically it calls out that in verse 9 of chapter 2, "...and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food." Excuse me, as we talked a couple weeks ago, um uh, that, that God's creation was set up so that man could could live and thrive. And, and he specifically calls out with vegetation that they were uh to to continue on developing their own kind or seeds out of their own kind, right? Um and so where we're going to look at a contrast. Well, we're probably not going to get to it today, but there's a, a contrast on what the garden is versus what it is outside the garden. And so if we look back, I'm going to circle back. Uh, real quick, and then come back to this line. Um, look at chapter 2, verse 5. What is the time setting? Before he starts talking about this man, Adam, how does he describe the, the setting, if you will? When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, for and there was no man to work the ground. And so this period of time, what is the focus Uh, Chapter 2, verse 5. I'm sorry, Shirley. There was nothing in the fields. There was no vegetation sprouting up in the field. Why? Because God hadn't caused it to rain. And why else? No one was there working it. And so it's kind of putting us back in this period of time where uh, there was not order to agriculture. Because... In order for agriculture to work, in order for plants to grow, you need rain, and you need someone to work up the earth. And so as we saw in chapter 1 that there was chaos in the universe, and then God stepped in and brought order to it, we're going to see in chapter 2 that there's chaos on earth, chaos on the ground to the point that the ground cannot do what God intended it to do. The ground cannot produce food because it's not raining, man's not cultivating it. And so God is going to fix that by doing what? Plopping a man down, and this man is made as we saw in chapter one in the image of God, and God allows him to bring order through everything. And specifically, we're going to start out with the garden, and then we're going to see that that has to move outside the garden because he he messes up. But surely brought up in the midst of this garden, there's trees, Uh, and so the difference. What is the difference between eating from trees versus eating from? Plants from the ground. Yeah, the, the tree is more passive, if you will, right? And, and I know living in this area that there's a lot of work and effort that goes into trees and into gardens. Uh, but for the most part, that, that tree is, is more of a, as a, as a passive reward, a passive food, whereas uh, eating your bread or, or wheat from the ground would be more of a uh, take some more action associated with it. Yeah, and, and so on that note, we see the tree of life, and what other tree was specifically called out here in this section? Okay, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And do we have any other uh, um, insight as to these trees? Is there anything else said about these trees in the section that we read? Uh, just in the, the second half of, of verse 9, um, the only other thing that I see is that the tree of life was, it gives a location of that tree of life. And what is a location? In the midst of the garden. And that word midst would be what? The middle. Center, middle, halfway. Why Why does the author mention that? Yeah, neither do I, Shirley. Uh, but, but it's something interesting. It's something interesting. All right, we're going to continue on in chapter 2, and we're going to circle back around and try to put a little bow on this. The Lord God, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. So what do we see in this uh, couple of verses here? So God had, had put this garden in Eden, And now he took this man and put the man where? He took the man and put him in the garden, and what was the man to do? Okay, uh, but Shirley's jumping ahead. We're going to see something else. What else was the man not to, or what was the man to do? Yeah, he was to work it and keep it. What's the significance of working and keeping? Is there significance? The fact that it's there means we need to understand what it's talking about. And this term, if we were to look in Numbers uh, chapter uh, 3, 7 through 10, we would see that same term used to describe uh, what the priests were doing in the tabernacle. That they were to work and keep the tabernacle. So what does a priest do in the tabernacle? Well, we'll look at that question here in a minute. So this question is, uh, if this is uh, priestly service, what is the role of a priest? And well, I guess we can open up now. What is the role of a priest? To keep the people busy? To what? To maintain? What were the priests to maintain when it came to the te- uh, tabernacle and temple? Okay, they were supposed to maintain the holiness and they did that by ensuring that if you had, uh, by by enforcing the purity laws. Why did Israelite, why were the Israelites given laws about purity? What they could eat? How they were to wash themselves? When to stay away after uh, their menstruation? Uh, and, and a bunch of other details. Um, why were they given those purity laws? Okay, so there, there's some, uh, we see a shadow of Christ. Um, but was it, we see that the Israelites benefited from them, especially looking back. We see they benefited from these purity laws. But why they were specifically told to stay out of the temple, stay out of the tabernacle, until a period of time where they were able to cleanse themselves. Why, were, why was it focused on them cleansing themselves? Was it for their health, or was it for something else? It's to set them apart. And if you walk into the temple, into the tabernacle, uh, and you are unclean, what do you do to the tabernacle? You contaminate it. You are no longer maintaining the holiness of that area. And so the priest's job was to maintain the holiness of this area. And why was it so important that the holiness of the tabernacle be maintained? Because it's where God dwelt. So we see a connection or a possible connection with what Adam, with what the man was tasked to do with the tabernacle. The man was tasked to work and keep it, so that it would maintain its purity, because that is where God dwelt. Do you see it? We also see, as Shirley brought up, a couple commands here. What is the first command man was given? It's not a trick question. Well, I guess it may be. What's the first command? Okay, so we generally think of the first command as, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that's the second command. The first command is that you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. First command. You can eat of every tree of the garden. The second one was what? Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that means that the man was able, the man was commanded to eat of what other tree? The tree of life. He could eat of any tree, including the tree of life. But he could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that term knowledge of good and evil, if we were to look at how that term is used throughout the book of Job, the account of Job, it's God's knowledge. God is the keeper of that knowledge. And so they were not to eat of the knowledge of good and evil uh, because God was the keeper of that knowledge. Got five minutes. Uh, Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. So what was man tasked to do? Work and keep the garden. Work and keep the garden. Uh, that's a pretty big task. God acknowledges it's a big task because we see here in verse 18. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. Just real quick on that side note. We see here that after man was created, that God also created every creature from the ground and every bird from the heaven. Were creatures of the, of the ground and birds of the heaven created on the same day? No. No, they weren't. And so that just further calls, uh, at least to me, to think that this is not necessarily a retelling of the creation account, that it's it's focusing in on uh, an important aspect of that creation account. But what was the man to do? Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So this is the first time that we see that that the term Adam is used uh, as a, a proper name. Other times that term Adam is used as man. Uh, because Adam in Hebrew means man. Uh, and so it could be used as either like a, a a generic man. It could be used as a historical man. It could be used as a representative man. Uh, and I think that we see all of those within Adam. But we see that God said, uh, he he looked back and he saw what aspect of God, or of Adam, excuse me. He saw Adam Uh, He tasked him to work this garden, said you could eat of all the trees, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in verse 18, he comes to this conclusion. The Lord God said what? It's not good for man to be alone. And we looked at that term good a couple weeks ago. Uh, What what should this call out to us today? Man doesn't function properly when he's alone. When we look back at, at the Genesis 1 account, we see that God created everything. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Evening, morning, second day. And God would look back on His creation and see that it what? Was good. It was functioning properly. Everything was doing what it needed to do. And here He's saying that man doesn't function properly on his own. It's not good for man to be alone. So God decides that He'll make a helper to fit him. And we see that the account goes through and it starts talking about what? God, I'm going to, or God says, I'm going to make a helper to help Adam. And then what is the picture that we see? All the animals are paraded in front of Adam. And what is Adam's job here? He names them, and he gives them an identity. He gives them purpose. He gives the animals purpose, which is something that God had done before, right? Through chapter 1, we see that God was the one that gave names to the heaven, to the sea, to the earth. Here, Adam is the one that is giving names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heaven. And what was the result of, uh, or the conclusion at the end of Adam giving names to all the animals? And the animals that were there were not suitable. They did not fit him. So what was the conclusion? Make Eve, Make Eve right? So verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept he took one of the ribs and closed up its place in the flesh. And we're going to stop right there today, uh, but I would encourage you to, to look through this aspect of deep sleep um, and to understand what it is. Look at how this word rib is used throughout the rest of the Bible, uh, and we're going to see uh, dig into that next week. Kenny. Yeah. and And so what we didn't get to today... Um, we'll look at it a little bit more tomorrow. We're going to see glimpses of again in chapter 3. But we're going to see in the midst of that garden, there's the tree of life. And we're going to see that that there's some um, special handling that needs to be uh, around in that garden. And we're going to look similarly. The similar language is set up uh, like, like this building. Well, I'll make it a little bit bigger. But there's a building that was set up similarly that had something special here that had a separation here, um, that the priests would work to maintain the holiness, right? Uh, So if we look at the tabernacle and the way the tabernacle is designed, we're going to see that the tabernacle has similar designs to the garden. And what is really cool, and I'm giving away uh, some really cool stuff for a couple weeks, when the uh, angel of the Lord was set outside the garden to keep Adam and Eve out, where was he placed? What side of the? It was placed at the entrance, and the entrance was on what side of the garden? On the east side of the garden, and so there was a cherubim placed with a flaming sword to separate man from the presence of God. What was decorating the curtain? A cherubim. What was the purpose of the curtain in the tabernacle to separate out the holy of holies? To separate the presence of God. Which direction did the tabernacle set up to face? East. I know. I, don't, I, don't, I tell you what, all this stuff is, I mean, it, it's mind-boggling. But you could, and I'll end on this point. We're going to see the same connections, right? We're going to see, I think, priestly service is needed in the, the Garden of Eden. The aspect of priest is huge. We're going to see priestly service is needed in the tabernacle. And that's what Moses spends an awful lot of time talking about. We're going to see that pre, that Christ is the fulfillment of our priest. He's our great high priest. Second Peter, or 1 Peter, excuse me, is going to tell us that we are a chosen priesthood. There is significance to working and keeping throughout the Bible, from the first pages of the Bible to the last pages of the Bible. And the role of the priest is to maintain the holiness of God. Our role as priests today is to do what? Maintain the holiness of God. It all kind of ties together in the nice pretty picture. All right, well, that just calls out one. On the east side. yeah. We'll, we'll look at that in a couple weeks. I'll, I'll lay out that, that teaser. Um, we'll look at that in a couple weeks because I, I, I'm, I'm out of time this morning. Uh, if you would, join me in a word of prayer and then we'll be uh, dismissed before our worship service. Father, we're thankful for your son. We're thankful for him being our great high priest, Father. We're thankful that he, for what he has done for us, that his blood has cleansed us, that his blood has made us a new creation, Father. Uh, we're thankful for uh, your word all the way back to Genesis, Father, and what we can glean from it. And we pray, Father, we can accept it with, with humble hearts and just sit back with amazement, Father, as to how wonderful and how great you are. Lord, we thank you again for Jesus, and this prayer we ask through him. Amen. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless.